0: Alright, so 1 John chapter 3, we're continuing our study in this uh, awesome first of the three epistles that John wrote in between the gospel and the revelation. And uh, so turn with me if you would, First John chapter 3, uh, we finished with verse 16 last time we were here in this book, and um, we're going to pick it up right there in verse 16 and move through the rest of the chapter this morning, God willing. <clears throat> so here we go, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Uh, brothers, again, as we often point out, speaks of the brethren or the brothers and sisters, the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That sets the example. Um, and, uh, and we, therefore, then express our love similarly by laying down our life for the brothers. Now, while that could take on an extreme Uh, likeness to the sacrifice of Christ in terms of literally dying for your brothers and sisters in Christ if the occasion arose, um, what really is likely in terms of just the regular application of this is simply living our lives in such a way that we live them sacrificially for our brothers and sisters in Christ as a reflection of the attitude and mindset that uh, Christ Jesus had for us. As a matter of fact, turn to Philippians chapter 2 Paul elaborates on this very mindset, and of course, it, it really just gives us uh, probably the best um, you know uh, best uh, the best word on this kind of thing. Um, so let me just start in uh, verse uh, three. Do nothing from selfish ambition of chapter two of Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. That last section there, I just can never avoid reading along with the rest of the passage. But the thrust of what Paul is saying there, in relation to what John is talking about here in chapter 3 of his first letter, uh, is the idea there of having the mindset that Christ had, in his willingness to lay down even his very life, uh, setting aside his glory, his um, uh, his his proper place, and even all the worship that he deserved in the midst of all that, he set it aside to take on the role of a servant, ultimately for the main purpose of dying for our sins. But in doing so, he also set an example that we are to follow, an example he often taught his disciples, whether it was washing their feet or whether it was just demonstrating the level of humility that he did. And of course, you almost need to stop and take a minute and step back and consider just what a level of humility Jesus demonstrated. Um, the, The distance between he as God and us as creation is infinite. But yet, nonetheless, he was willing to condescend to such a degree as to become one of us, and if that weren't bad enough, to be a servant to us. Well, that obviously sets an example that we can follow. And so, if he demonstrated love by virtue of coming into the world as one of us, dying for our sins and such, so too, then, our expression of love for the brothers and sisters should be something akin to that. The idea of setting aside our own perceived sense of importance. In our case, it's perceived in his. It was true and genuine, obviously. But setting aside our own sense of importance Himself-importance or glory or greatness or whatever it is and to recognize no, that's not the posture of one who is seeking to emulate Christ who set those things aside in order to serve. so too should we demonstrate that for our brothers and so therefore that being said, John then continues to demonstrate the practical reality of that and what that looks like. he says in verse 17 back in first John chapter three. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so there becomes this this uh, this clear explanation that if in fact we truly understand the love of God in Christ toward us, and if we truly seek to, uh, as his disciples emulate him, which is what disciples do then that's going to find its way out in the way that we treat one another. Now, it is interesting that James says something very similar uh, in chapter 2 of his own epistle where he talks about, you know, um, you know, if, if somebody says they're cold and hungry and you sort of say, hey, be warm and well-fed, but you don't do anything to help them. Well, how are you demonstrating the genuineness of your faith in that? And he goes on to say, you know, uh, well, look, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, here John is saying something kind of like that, but he's equating it with love more than uh, not necessarily specifically faith like James would be, but he says something akin to that. He says, well, how do you demonstrate love if you close your heart off to people and don't help them when they need something? How is that loving? How does that demonstrate a Christ-like love that has been shed abroad in our hearts, has been perfected in our hearts, or is seeking to be perfected in our hearts? No, rather, if we love God then we are going to demonstrate that love in our interactions with others. If we have experienced the love of God in Christ, we are going to share that love similarly with those around us. And so, you know, uh, in in the same way that James talks about a a faith without works, uh, you know, is dead. How do you demonstrate faith without your works? In the same way, uh, John is saying, essentially, well, look, love is kind of like that. Love expresses itself. It demonstrates itself in the way that we treat our brothers and sisters. Now, in uh, verse uh, 19, he goes on to say, but this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And he goes on to talk about the command, uh, ultimately what's at the heart of the command. Um, But here he speaks, he sort of connects this idea of our love being demonstrated practically, actively through uh, our service of others in that. And he equates it with this idea of feeling a certain sense of reassurance in our hearts that we belong to him. Now, this isn't some formula for feeling good about your relationship with God. It is simply the natural chain of how that works. Um, you know, if we, if we, for, let me start with this actually, maybe it's good to kind of start from this sort of point, but our hearts oftentimes condemn us. In other words, we inwardly feel as though maybe we don't measure up or maybe we're not even right with God. And John is saying, "Well, look. If you, when you're right with God, this is what it looks like. So, if you see this in your life, you have a certain sense of peace that comes with that. Um, a certain sense of peace should come with that. You should have. This is an evidence of the the genuineness of your faith that John has just been speaking about. How can we say that we love uh, the brethren if you can't tell if it's not actively, you know, expressed?" Well, if it is actively expressed, then that sort of reflectively then begins to uh, assure us that our hearts are, in fact, right with God. Uh, We oftentimes, sadly, fall into sort of a performance-based relationship with God, where we feel like our relationship is contingent upon how well I do or how much I do. And in this passage, John is trying to set that aside and say, look, it's not about how much you do that makes you right. The fact that this exists within you and you want to do, uh, you want to express the love that you've experienced in Christ through your service to others, this becomes, again, reflexively an evidence of the legitimacy of your faith. Now, he goes, of your love, I should say, and faith, but here John's talking more specifically about love. But he goes on from there and begins to talk about what our assurance, rather than condemnation, is based on. And I love that he does this. He he continues on, and he says uh, again, whatever we uh, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. And that will not only help to cap a discussion, but it also segues into the next thing he'll talk about. But let's let's uh, take a minute and spend, spend some time right here. The idea of his commands. It's interesting that he has been talking about love being expressed through our service to one another. But rather than stop there and leave it in this area of, of, of works and activities, he once again pulls us back to the place where we recog- where, uh, where we remember that our relationship with Christ, when it comes to questions of obedience and that, is actually not just about doing the stuff. The ultimate command is to love Jesus, is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. It is interesting, you know, that... Um, you know, John was there when, uh, when the lawyer came up to Jesus one day and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here John puts Jesus' name in that uh, place, essentially, and rightfully so, as the incarnate uh, God in the flesh. Uh, Jesus, of course, fits into that. But John essentially says the same thing, that the commandment is to love God to love Christ, and to love your neighbor. So in a sense, he's reiterating that which Jesus had said before. And you'll notice that with both of those commands, when the question was asked by the lawyer, you know, what's the great commandment? What's the primary? What is the greatest of all the commandments? In his mind, he may very well have been thinking that there is some do thing in the law that Jesus is going to point to. But he didn't. He instead pointed toward the heart of all the commandments, and that is love for God. And therefore, that becomes expressed by your love for your fellow man. Uh, and, and Jesus said, in doing these two, loving God and loving your neighbor, you fulfill all the law and the prophets. Well, that that's not only simplifies things, but it is so profoundly important to understand um, if there's not the love of God and love of neighbor, then the things we do really are nothing more than rote religion. They are just simply our activities in order to try and maybe prove ourselves to God or feel justified in our hearts, like you know, we point to our good works and say, you know, hey, I've look what I've done and all this kind of thing. But the intention here, both in Jesus' teaching and in John's, again, kind of reiterating of that teaching, At the heart of that is something much more important and much more fundamental, much more of the starting point to any activities that should flow from our faith. And that is a love and a belief in Christ and a love for our neighbors. These two things are inextricably foundational to whatever is built upon after that. Without those things, you have a flawed foundation and one that ultimately results in legalism and those kinds of things. But the Christian faith is so much more than simply a legalistic attempt to follow rules. We've been invited into a relationship with God that is personal and alive and interactive with Him. And that relationship produces something naturally. It's a lot like when Jesus talked about abiding in the vine. Um, You know, a a branch doesn't work, quote-unquote, to try and produce fruit. A branch naturally produces fruit when it's abiding in the vine. Belief, love for Jesus in this case is the analogy, the metaphor. And therefore, the branch, the fruit that comes through that branch in this particular context, love for your neighbor, just comes naturally. This isn't something we have to try to do. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to do it, but the more we find ourselves just simply abiding in Him, the more naturally. The outward expression of that relationship uh, takes form and ultimately creates, uh, you know, service to our brothers and sisters, demonstrating love to them and that kind of a thing. And so John's intention here in talking about following the commands uh, extends far beyond sort of the Ten Commandments or the six hundred thirteen commandments that comprise the law. But really, he speaks to the heart of it, and this is where the Christian should seek to dwell. Again, if if if, uh, if, if we're wrestling to try and figure out what abiding is all about and all that, and we're trying to practice abiding and that kind of thing, um, think of it much more naturally than that. It is the natural expression of spending time with the Lord. Um, the more we get to know Him, the more we want to be like Him. The more we want to be like Him, the more we will be like Him. The more we are like Him, the more we'll do those things that John is talking about naturally and not out of some sense of coercion or forcing. Now, he does say here at the end of this discussion, before he moves into the next discussion, again, kind of a beautiful segue, Uh, at least I see it as kind of a beautiful segue, and that's where he finishes by saying, by this we know that he abides in us. Again, here's this idea of abiding. Here's another evidence of the fact that he abides in us, that he dwells within us, that he stays in that place of, of, of centrality within us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Of course, we remember in the upper room discourse when, John, when uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples and he said, it's good for you that I go away because if I do, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. In other words, it was contingent upon Jesus' death and resurrection that ultimately following that, the Holy Spirit would come and would remind them of the things that he had taught them, would guide them into all truth. As he'd said earlier, I think it was in Luke's gospel, uh, prior to that time in the upper room teaching on the Holy Spirit, he said, when you find yourself standing before magistrates, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You don't have to worry that you're caught in a situation unprepared. In that moment, uh, the Holy Spirit will meet uh, with you and give you the words to say. Um, all these uh, wonderful teachings uh, on the Holy Spirit. Um, One of the most beautiful things uh, that we understand about the Holy Spirit is actually found in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, uh, where Paul, speaking in Ephesians chapter 1, tells us uh, in verse 13, that in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory and so when we became believers not only did we uh, move into this place of being saved of being born again but in concert with that and in you know deeply rooted and connected in that is the idea that the holy spirit takes up residence within us and seals us until the day of redemption until jesus comes and receives that purchased possession. Uh, We are his, and the Holy Spirit becomes a proof of that. As a believer, the Holy Spirit, uh, as believers, the Holy Spirit resides within us. This is the gift of Christ to us uh, as believers, and this is an evidence of the fact that he abides in us, as he says here in in 1 John chapter 3 at the end of the chapter. The idea that the Holy Spirit is within us means that we are sealed, that we can walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul would say in Romans uh, chapter 8. It's interesting. Uh, We were talking earlier about our hearts condemning us, and Paul in Romans 8 talks about how there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in verse 4 and talks about this idea of, of being in Christ Jesus as being connected with the idea of not walking according to the flesh, but in step with the Spirit. And so this becomes... Uh, it, it makes perfect sense that John would in, sort of include this in this discussion about um, about the proof of the fact that we're his, that our heart's not condemning us. God is greater than our heart. Well, how, how has he demonstrated that? Well, one of the ways he's demonstrated that is by giving us the Holy Spirit as an assurance of our position in Christ, practically speaking, uh, or positionally speaking. And then, of course, also we have the evidence of the practical outworking of that, the fruit of the Spirit that ultimately finds its way out in our lives as we walk with him. Um, there is such uh, rest in the knowledge that as a born-again believer, that we're secure in him because it changes our perspective on the service of our brothers and sisters, on any of the dues that grow out of our relationship with him, the the living out of our faith, the practical expression of the good works that we do that glorify God. Um, when we when we live our lives from a position of 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 being saved, when we know we're saved, well then that affects our, uh, our motivations for the things we do. They become a response to the goodness and grace of God. We know we're not earning anything by it because everything that was costly in regard to our sin in that was paid for at the cross. Jesus took care of that. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. We are now, as believers, free because of that. And so, therefore, the good works we do become an expression of our thanksgiving to him. They're an act of worship, Um, as opposed to not being sure of our salvation, opposed to not being secure in the fact that we are bought and paid for and that we have our true rest in him. I could go on and on about this. I just, I think about passages like in Hebrews where he brings a better rest and all of these things and there therefore remains a rest for the people of God and all of this. But when we, when we, when our works become an expression of worship because we are in the grace of God, we know it, that's a whole different thing than I don't know it, I'm not sure about it, and am I really saved and all that? So therefore I do lots of stuff in order to sort of, you know, either feel like I'm earning it or to do things in order to try and reassure myself in some way. Well, that's, you know, frankly, that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a frightening place to live. It's a very unsettling and stressful place to live. Um, because we're never really resting in the assurance that God has given us. You know, Jesus often spoke of things like, you know, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand or my hand. Of all that the Father has given me, I will lose none. Uh, Paul would write, "He who began a good work in me, uh, Philippians chapter one, he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Christ." Romans chapter eight. He goes on to talk about this beautiful golden chain of redemption that, whom he foreknew, he predestined; who he predestined, he called; who he uh, called, he justified; who he justified, he glorified. This beautiful chain of redemption that ends in our glorification, that which was started again in Philippians one, is completed in the day of Christ. And so, um. So there is, within all of that, a sense that we are secure in him as his children. And as such, that now becomes the place from which our good works flow. Uh, That abiding in Christ that now becomes the natural place of the believer in Christ. We are abiding in him. He abiding in us. And therefore, it produces fruit and all of this kind of thing. If we're in a place of not being sure, if our heart's condemning us all the time, then we're responding from a different place, aren't we? I need to do this because I need to know that I'm saved, saved, or I feel saved, or you know the various struggles that we sometimes fall into when we wrestle with this point. So John is talking here about the freedom in Christ, where our hearts no longer condemn us because God is greater than our hearts. He's demonstrated it by sending His Son to die for our sins once and for all. We come by faith, we receive that beautiful gift of salvation in God's grace, and we therefore now live a life in response to it. That is the The simple sort of understanding of what is going on in this. Now, uh, again, I think it also uh, this last uh, this last word here at the end of chapter three also creates a beautiful segue into chapter four, because since the Holy Spirit resides within us, the Spirit of Truth resides within us, uh, the Spirit who gives us discernment as we study the Word, and that these kinds of things are true of us as believers. So, when John continues in chapter 4 and talks about not believing every spirit but testing the spirits, okay, well, we can do that because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And that is something we will talk about more next time. So, Father, thank you for the assurance that you've given us in Christ. We thank you that even though our hearts can be prone to condemn us, we can feel as though we're not right with you or that we're. Um, falling short in some way. And if that motivates us to want to work harder or do things to sort of assure ourselves or, God forbid, believe we're actually earning our salvation, if that's our belief, if that's our motivation, if that's the place we find ourselves, um, help us with that. Help us not to live in that place. But if we have truly put our faith in you, we've rested upon you for our salvation. It's not our works. It's not our are doing but rather it's entirely the finished work of Christ then help us to see that to rest in that and to let that become now the motivation for what we do for you we thank you father and praise you for just the um overwhelming sense of assurance that you give us by taking you at your word so help us to be students of your word to study these things to consider the implications to piece this together in our our minds so we understand it better and better so that our hearts might truly rejoice in the knowledge that we are in fact bought and paid for. Uh, So Father, we praise you. We bless you. We ask you to continue to bless our time as we open your word together and uh, help us to grow more and more into the image of Christ. Help us to, as a result of that, uh, love our neighbors, to pour out our lives uh, in service of others as a response, again, not in something we're earning, but let that just flow naturally now that we understand our place in Christ. Father, we thank you. We love you and praise you. Thank you for sealing us with the Holy Spirit and that he resides within us and helps us to grow in the ways that we've been talking about. So thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have any thoughts or comments or questions or anything like that, please feel free to um, go ahead and leave them in the comments section below, uh, or if you're watching this on my personal website at ParsonsPad.com, or if you're listening to the audio version, uh, you can go to my website against ParsonsPad.com. You can comment, you can ask questions, you can email me, uh, those kinds of things, and uh, and I, I do my best to try and keep up on the correspondences, and um, and uh, and I do appreciate them. I love interacting with you all, so thanks for those of you who reach out and um also I'll encourage you by the way if uh if these videos are helpful for you there are others you might consider uh dialing in with as well we're going through revelation on sunday mornings and uh at the moment we are live streaming through our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com you can watch our uh our sunday morning live stream and uh and it becomes a recorded uh, saved recording there as well uh, it's also, those things are available in our archive on our YouTube channel as well, right here where you may be watching this. Um, I'll encourage you to join us on Wednesday nights on our YouTube channel. You can watch our live stream of our midweek study where we're going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. And that's kind of a neat thing we've been doing, uh, where we're uh, where people can comment and ask questions uh, on the live stream, and then we try to answer those and interact. If, if, uh, if you're not able to be part of a, a fellowship on Wednesday nights and you want to sort of you know, uh, virtually join ours. We'd love to have you, and uh, it's just another time to get together in the Word and to uh, to get the Word into us. So, but thanks for watching, and uh, very much appreciate it. And we will look forward to uh, continuing through the Word uh, next time. So, God bless you until then. May the Lord bless and keep you. Make His face shine upon you. Be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Amen.